0: We can turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, chapter 6. I'm going to teach on a topic that I cannot get my arms around today. Uh, The topic of the holiness of God. And I I want to, uh, by God's grace, through this passage of Scripture, hopefully expand our understanding of the holiness of God. Isaiah 6 and verse 1 says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth. And he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. What is your response to this statement this morning? If I make this assertion, holiness is the primary, fundamental attribute of God. Okay, holiness is the fundamental, essential, primary attribute of God. Okay, that it, is, it has, in the context of who God is, it has pride of place. It rules over and affects all other aspects, attributes, and characteristics of God himself. How do you respond to that? Isaiah 5 and verse 19, if you just go back, one chapter says, God is called the Holy One. Psalm 111 and verse 9 says this, Holy and awesome is His name. In the New Testament, the church is called to pursue holiness with this thought, Be holy, for I am essentially and uniquely holy. It is true of God the Father. It is obviously true of the Holy Spirit. It is also true of the Son of God. For when Jesus comes and is about to be born, the prophecy is this his name is to be called the holy one so if every member of the trinity holiness is the exalted virtue or attribute it is the essential essence of who god is The holiness of God governs and touches everything about Him. His love is not weak and anemic. His love is a holy love. It is not a permissive or weak love. His justice is a holy justice. His power is a holy power. His presence is a holy presence. His judgment is holy. His knowledge is holy. Everything about God is affected by His holiness. Therefore, exalting, admiring, and worshiping the holiness of God should be the top priority of the church. To exalt God. We need to broaden that definition to understand it clearly. Why this is to be the exalted virtue. Why this is to be the primary pursuit of the church of Christ. It's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, He says, When you pray, say what? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed, holy, exalted, be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed, be thy name. The question we as the church today have to ask ourselves is, are we in any sense consumed with the holiness of God? Does it affect how we view things? Does it affect how we live our lives? Because it should. But when we, when we push on this topic and we emphasize the holiness of God, what happens? Attention rises in our hearts, doesn't it? Because what do we like to do? We like to talk about the grace of God. We like to talk about the love of God. We like to talk about the mercy of God. Why? Because that's comfortable. All right? It's easy to talk about God is love, but that, the Bible never says God is love, love, love. It is only of holiness. Twice in Scripture, you find this, what the Old Testament writers, or what the Old Testament commentators in Latin would call, the trisagion, the tri-holiness of God. Expressed powerfully and exalted powerfully in Scripture, as His fundamental attribute. You see, the love of God is not to many offensive. The mercy of God, it's not offensive. The holiness of God, stops us in our tracks. It affects how we see ourselves. It creates tension. If we hide the holiness of God, if we downgrade the holiness of God, if we ignore, fail to emphasize the holiness of God, what happens? Folks, here's what happens sin is trivialized. It's not a big deal. Do you see? And, and, and we, we do. We become sloppy in our Christian living. We become sloppy in our discernment. It's certainly not serious. It definitely isn't an offense against God. It's, and here's the words we tend to use, it's a mistake, it's a shortcoming, it's a failure, it's a misstep. And we, we tend to live in an age where the only thing that is really sin is crime. Right? And if you get drug off in handcuffs, that's sin. And we have have become a culture that is deeply affected by a downgrading of the holiness of God. The result is this. After we trivialize sin, the cross of Jesus Christ becomes what? It becomes jewelry. It becomes something, a trinket that adorns things. But folks, I would argue this. If You do not, when you look at the cross, if you are not reminded of the holiness of God and the love of God, you don't understand the cross. If all the cross says to you is God is love, you do not understand it. How can the brutal death of the Son of God be a loving act? If it stands alone, you end up with a cross that doesn't make sense to anybody. It looks like divine child abuse. And that's what some liberal commentators have said. They only want to look at the cross of Christ as an expression of the amazing love of God. But that's weird. I mean, seriously. God sent his son so that he could, in eternity past, ordain his brutal death. Because he is love and that's it. No, it is out of the holiness of God. That the Son of God goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestles with the will of His Father, redeeming His people by His bloodshed on the cross. It is there that He wrestles with what? This cup. And what is the cup? The cup is the picture of the wrath of God that flows out of His holiness and His, can I be direct? His hatred of sin see, the book of Habakkuk says this, Habakkuk reflecting on God, he says, God, you are purer of eyes than to behold sin, than to tolerate it, than to be grandfatherly about it and tolerance. You are purer of eyes. Your essential nature is holiness. And see, the Old Testament prophets had a view of God, a view of the holiness of God that deeply affected them. What is the holiness of God? When we we say it, what is it? it? It has two characteristics. One is this idea of morality. It refers to the absolute purity of God. That He is completely distinct from all sin. He is completely other than that, apart from it. He is moral perfection. He is flawless in His character and conduct. But the holiness of God in the book of Isaiah, and I believe throughout Scripture, takes on a greater dynamic that is also amazing to us. It's morality, but it is also speaking of the majesty of God. When we say His name is holy, what do we mean? Well, the idea of holiness in the original word in the Old Testament literally means to cut, to separate, to make distinct. So if we are to say that God is in his holiness, a cut above all others, then we're speaking the truth about the holiness of God. He is separate from us in terms of sinfulness, but he is unique and transcendent and above us in terms of this idea of majesty. And both words are kind of captured in this. So that when God comes into the tabernacle or into the temple in the Old Testament and he expresses his glory and his holiness, there is also something about it that is what? It is majestic. It's exalted. It's glorious. In Mark chapter 4, you find an encounter of the disciples with the holiness of God and the majesty of God. Mark chapter 4, the disciples in their boat, the boat is overtaken by a storm. It's threatening to kill them. And out of utter despair, they cry out to Jesus and say, Don't you care that we're perishing? They're afraid. Jesus stands up and does what? He speaks to the storm, and all of a sudden there is an absolute calm. And what happens to the disciples? They sit there and applaud. No. <laughs> Fear becomes what? Sheer terror. Well, that's weird. The thing that drove them to despair and fear is eliminated. And what is their response? Terror. Why? They say to each other, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and seas obey him. He is unique. He is majestic. He is a cut above any man that we have ever heard. And they would refer to his teaching in the same way. His teaching was majestic and holy. It was a cut above anything they had ever heard. Do we have a large, a full and accurate view of God's holiness that includes His majesty, that affects us? Do we have a God who transforms and alters our lives? Or do we have a God in terms of holiness who is anemic and weak and grandfatherly, cuts everyone a break, grades on a curve? Or do we see Him for who He really is? In 1 Peter one fifteen, Peter will say this. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in everything you do. Folks, here's the simple truth. The simple truth is this. The holiness of God should affect every area of your life. It should affect your TV viewing. It should affect the use of your resources. It should affect athletic. It should affect everything about our lives. And the sad truth is that it often doesn't because we tend to serve a God who is too small. A God who is stripped of His majesty because we don't want to see Him as exalted, as a cut above, as unique, as over everything that He has created. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes to a vision of God. The timing of this vision is fascinating. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. One of the longest living kings in the Old Testament is Uzziah. He lived 52 years. 42 years glorious. Then pride came into his life. And the last 10 years of his life were lived with leprosy because he thought that he could assume the position of God. He was a great king, but ultimately led to disappointment. He was a king who inspired hope but now the king who inspired hope has died and Israel is about to move from what we would call a golden era into an era of demise and collapse. A moral depravity is going to sneak into the nation of Israel. And it's at this time that Isaiah, first of all, if you read Isaiah chapter 1, he's called into the ministry. Isaiah, son of Annas. Called by God, go and I want you to speak this message to my people. I want you to call them back. This vision came at a time of crisis for Isaiah. At a time when the king who gave hope is died, And the beginning of Israel's difficult time period has come. And Isaiah is called by God to public ministry as a prophet. It is a call that is rugged. Why? Because his job is to go and speak about the holiness of God to the people of God. It is a message that will make people uncomfortable. It will make them sense and see their sinfulness. But it is also a message that will speak of future hope and restoration by the power of a holy God. So it's a vision that comes at a time of crisis. What happens in verses 1 through 4 is that Isaiah encounters the presence, the very presence of God. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if Isaiah goes to the physical temple and there sees a vision of God, or if he is taken in a vision into the presence of God in a vision state to see something glorious. We don't know which it is. Okay, My, my lean is towards the second that he is given a vision of God that is absolutely unbelievable, mind-blowing, and transformational for Isaiah. Because he will never be the same. Because he has encountered the presence of God. Verse 1 tells us that he sees the Lord, God himself, the supreme ruler, the supreme sovereign, the king of kings, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe is filling the temple. The idea is this, in the temple, in this scene, the presence and glory of God is where? It is everywhere. It is flowing over everything. No part of the temple is untouched. And Isaiah looks at this, this is a stunning vision of the immensity of God. The idea is this, folks. There is nowhere in your life where God's holiness and presence is not there. He is all around us. He fills the earth that He has created. And then He talks about these strange ones, if we can say it that way. Verse 2. Above Him were seraphs. Seraphs literally means fiery or burning ones. Most likely, they are angels that attend the throne of God. There were six of them, or or there were a a few of them is the idea. We don't know how many, two or four, or multiple. We don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. They each have six wings. With two wings, they cover their feet. With two wings, they cover their eyes, their faces. And with two wings, they attend to the presence of God. Now, what's your first reaction to that? if If you're younger, your reaction is probably, cool. That's like, wow. It is amazing. It's, it's kind of like an avatar. It's, like, it's, it, it's an amazing picture. And what's our problem today? Our problem today is that we have been influenced by uh, TV shows like Touched by an Angel. Right? Would you want to be touched by this angel? Okay? Would you like a... F- okay? I don't think so. What's the picture? The picture is to inspire all. The picture is to realize that even the holy ones who attend the throne of God are aware of what? They are not God. They are creatures of God and in their creatureliness and in honor of their creatureliness, what do they do? They cover their feet and they cover their faces and they attend to the presence of God. Why? It's a picture of the holiness and of the exalted nature of God and these Fiery ones, attend. And what are they doing? Here's all they do. They make a proclamation. It's, it's somewhat of a cadence. They call one to the other. Powerful picture. They are saying, perhaps even singing as some translations say it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now, are they stuttering? The, 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 the track gets Stuck. Okay, and I think the answer here is clearly no. In, in, in the Old Testament language, Hebrew people, if they wanted to place emphasis on something, they would use repetition to place emphasis. Okay, what do we do? We tend to italicize something. We put it in bold. We underline it. All kinds of things happen in text. Okay, we put exclamation marks. What are we doing? We are emphasizing something. Okay, the way that the, the writers of the Old Testament would emphasize something was by Repetition. And so what are the angels doing? They're focusing attention on the exalted nature of God. It is a personal witness to what? To the divine majesty, to the glory, to the holiness of God. And so it has two aspects. It is talking about the utter morality and purity of God, which should change us. But this is also talking about the majesty of God. He is worthy of praise, And the next thing they say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's a powerful statement. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is that which is is the magnification of God. When the disciples went up onto the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, three of them, Peter, James, and John, the Bible says that Jesus began to glow in their presence And then a cloud came down and settled. A cloud, smoke. Now, here's the echo of this Old Testament picture pointing forward. And what does God do? God says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He has absolute authority, he is the majestic one. Later, what does John say? John says, The Word became flesh. And lived among us. The, and this we sing in the song, right? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Where do we see that? In Jesus. John reflects, I believe, back to the mountain of transfiguration. And what does he say? The word became flesh and lived among us. And we, the disciples, who are now inflamed with joy and passion for God, we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a quote from the book of Exodus chapter 34 where Moses is held in the the cleft of the rock and what happens? The glory of the Lord passes by. You see, this idea of the holiness of God is utter purity and complete majesty. And why does God give this vision to Isaiah? I think he gives it to him for the same reason that he gave it to the disciples. Why did he give them this vision? To empower them and to fill them with a passion for the glory of God. That's why he does it. This vision that is given to Isaiah is not fireworks as if to entertain, to surprise. No, this is a scene that is set up to amaze with a clearer view of who God is. But the purpose of this episode, the purpose of this event is that it might in some way affect Isaiah's life. That it might be a transformational moment for him as he realizes that the king that he loved has died in somewhat of a disgrace. God takes him into the temple and allows him to see that the king of kings is still on the throne. In spite of all that's happening around his life, God is still in control. And the God who is in control is holy and majestic. God gives him a vision to change his life. Not so that Isaiah would say, wow, this is like amazing or cool. Not so that Isaiah would come away with a commitment to reformation. I am am going to be different. I'm going to change my life. It's not the goal. The goal is not that he would try harder. The goal is not that Isaiah would go out and say, you know what? My self-esteem is very low. And I I need to somehow capture a better view of myself. No, this vision of God changed him. And what did it do? It fit him for his public ministry. God had called him to a rugged task. This vision of God has a purpose. And its purpose is that Isaiah would be transformed. Folks, every time God reveals himself to you, he is doing it so that you will be different. I want you to look at three effects of this vision, of this, if you want to call it this, it's an encounter with God. That's what Isaiah has. He is a revelation of God, a manifestation of God. How does it affect him? That's the question. Has your life been affected by a clear vision of God? I think as you look at Isaiah's life, you're going to see how you can know if you have truly seen the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. The one who at the sound of his voice and at the proclamation of the voice of the angels the entire building shook note Isaiah's response to a vision of God verse 5 says this woe to me i cried woe to me i am ruined i am a man of unclean lips i live amongst the people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the lord How does this view of God affect Isaiah? Here's what happens. He is a man who becomes repentant. He starts talking about his sinfulness. He says, woe to me. And the idea of woe is fascinating. Jesus says this to the the Pharisees, doesn't he? He says, woe to you Pharisees. And then he condemns them for their hypocrisy and for their self-righteousness. In the Old Testament, the prophets, when they were going to proclaim a judgment of God, would say, woe to you. The purpose to attract attention to this idea of being doomed. It's what Isaiah is saying. I am disturbed by this picture of God. It is a judgment upon himself. He's thinking what? In light of the holiness and presence of God, I shouldn't be here. I'm not qualified. And then he says this. He says, I am ruined. And who is Isaiah? He's a man that God deemed capable, a man that God deemed a man of integrity, who was able to be a servant of God, a spokesman for God, a prophet for the Most High God. What happens? He says, I am done. Okay, A man who, from our perspective, we would have said, Isaiah's got his act together. That's what he would say. What is Isaiah saying? I saw the Lord and I don't have my act together. You see, folks, the most... Seriously, spiritual person, the most righteous person in the presence of God is always undone. Why? Because he is separate. He is a cut above. He is majestic in his holiness. And when he shows you his holiness, what happens? A, a, an incredible spirit of humility will come into your life. Now don't be proud of your righteousness. A view of the holiness of God is Disturbing. Isaiah says, whoa, whoa, I am doomed. I am falling apart. And God doesn't say, Isaiah, hey, 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 relax. Don't be so hard on yourself. Folks, understand this. This is a necessary breaking of God. (laughs) What do do we think? Oh, no, that talk about the holiness of God like that, that. That's disturbing. That won't attract people. Oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it will. Watch what happens to Isaiah in this text. He sees his own sin, knows what he, is, he deserves, is humbled by it, and what does he say? He says, I personally am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst people of unclean lips. What a difference! I'm not a prophet who's out there proclaiming the sinfulness of others. I'm a prophet who is self-aware, who is self-conscious, who thought he had his act together, but when I got in the presence of God, I realized that I was un. I was loosened. I came apart. John Calvin said this. He says, "Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until." They have contrasted themselves with the majesty and holiness of God. Folks, here's what I would say to you. Here's what I would say to myself. If I think I'm doing good, you know what I need to do? I need to look at God. I need to get an exalted view of God. so, I love when we sing songs like we sung this morning about the power of God, about the love of God, and the exaltation of God. Why? Because when that's happening, we become self-aware And then as we are self aware, where do we go? We we are we are provoked to repent, to say, God, I'm not as together as I think I am. And why this idea of lips? Why does Isaiah say, I'm a man of unclean or dirty lips? What's up with that? There's a connection between the lips and who you are, isn't there? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. And when the mouth speaks, what do I find out? I found out who I really am. This week, an NFL f- football player made some statements. And later, what did he say? Hey, that's not who I am. I, I was just talking from the cup. That's not who I really am. Not, not weighing in on the issue, okay? What would the response of Jesus be? Oh, yes, it is who you are. But see, folks, when sinful things come out, when they're expressed from our hearts through our mouths and we end up with unclean lips, what does it say? It says, I'm a sinful man. I'm ruined. I'm undone. And they need this work of repentance that says something like this My sin is serious, not trivial. I don't need to apologize. I need to repent. I don't need to say simply, Hey, you know what? I messed up. I made a mistake i'm sorry now i need to say you know what what i did was that's how isaiah felt when he saw god he he had a clear picture of his sinfulness and that picture of sinfulness joyfully led him in a good direction it gave him it provoked within him in him a heart of repentance and he could say my sin is offensive in light of a holy god the holiness of god was like an x-ray it was like a, a magnifying mirror that revealed to isaiah his true nature And prompted and provoked repentance. Secondly, it does this. Say to yourself, what is the response of God to such a statement from Isaiah? Verse 6. Then one of the burning ones, one of these flaming creatures, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. And your guilt is taken away. And your sin, Isaiah, is covered. What a blessed truth. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Why? Because the Son of God bore the wrath of God on the cross. Was ruined for me. So that I would not have to be ruined by the wrath of God. What is removed? Here's what Isaiah says. He says, the guilt of my sin. The shame that drove me away from God. That caused me to to want to escape the presence of God. That shame was taken away. And how quickly was it done? It was the immediate instantaneous response of a holy God to the repentant heart of a sinner. What happens? Isaiah comes, he sees God, he repents of his sin, and God dispatches to him an effect, a work of cleansing and forgiveness. He doesn't destroy a repentant sinner. He embraces them, he loves them, and this is where love and holiness come together, doesn't it? The holiness of God shows us who we are. Evokes and promotes prompts from us a response of repentance, which causes Father God in heaven to move in our direction with His cleansing work. God does not say to Isaiah, "Isaiah, try harder." Isaiah, come back again, and we'll see how you're doing. Isaiah doesn't want anything to do with it. You know what he just—he just wants to get out of the presence of God. But God's presence is everywhere. That's the picture here. That's why later in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, what will Isaiah say? Isaiah will say, all of our righteousness is what? It's like filthy rags. All of our self-promotion, all of our attempts, all of our trying to be what God wants us to be. Is not effective? So when God shows himself to Isaiah, Isaiah's response is not, God, I'll do better next time. His response is, God, I am ruined. God's response is that he comes and grants him a glorious cleansing, which is to say this, folks, for every person here this morning. You don't have, it, have to have it all together in order to come to God. Isn't that great? You don't, you don't have to pursue reformation. I've had people say, Pastor Tim, you know, I've been, been away from God, so I need to go through some process of reformation. That is a, first of all, it belittles the holiness of God because it says you can do better. And it also shrinks the cross in your life. It makes it small, ineffective, and perhaps unnecessary. The gospel is that God loves sinners. His holiness demands demands that the payment for sin is death. Who does that? Jesus. He cleanses us through His work on the cross. The result is this. The throne of holiness where God sits is also what? It's a throne of grace. Do you see? Both are present. The holiness of God and the love of God meet at the cross and they meet at the throne of God. So the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says what? In light of the work of Jesus, let us come boldly to the throne of grace so that we can find help that is so desperately needed in our time of need. You don't have to beat yourself up. God is not impressed. You don't have to do penance. God does not demand it, nor does he want it. And I believe this, it is an offense to the holiness of God because all of my attempts are tainted by my pride. All of my attempts at righteousness are tainted by my sinfulness. There's only one who is holy. And when we repent, He dispatches an instantaneous and immediate cleansing towards us. And that cleansing that comes not as a result of Isaiah. He got down and gave God 20 and then God gave him what he needed. He made offerings and sacrifices at the temple. And then God moved in his. That's not what happened. It's not. How does the holiness of God that leads to repentance, that leads to cleansing, how does it affect you? I want you to notice what happens next in this text. He says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and you'll see a logical flow here. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Probably an expression either of the Trinity or of the heavenly court. Who shall I send and who will go for us? For the heavenly court, who will go and do the bidding of God? And you would think Isaiah would say, oh man, not me. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst unclean people. I'm ruined. I'm done. I I fell apart. And what does he say? He doesn't say, here I am. Location. What does he say? He says, here am I. What is it? God says, I need someone to go and to speak the good news to people. Who will go for us? Isaiah's response is, send me. You see, folks, understand this. God does not reveal his glory to Isaiah in crushing fashion to do him in. It's not his aim. He's not seeking to unwind Isaiah, to, to take a man who has it together and cause him to be a man who can't function. It's where he is in the temple. He can't function. The cleansing of God in response to repentance does what? It it draws them back together. If any man is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old man that groveled on the floor in brokenness and sin is gone. And a new person is emerging in righteousness and holiness. You see, the purpose of God's revelation of His majesty and of His holiness is so that we wouldn't offer our sinful selves to God, but that we would offer our redeemed, restored selves to God. To the praise of His glory. You see, the response of of Isaiah here, it's it's surprising. I mean, folks, this is four verses later. I'm ruined, I'm done, get me out of here. I'm worthless. Here am I. Send me. What that's audacious. Who will go and be a spokesman for God? The man groveling on the floor? Cleansed? Yes. Yes. And you. And you. And you. God is not impressed when you beat yourself up, when you, when you grovel in his significance. He's not impressed. What attracts his attention is true repentance in light of his holiness. That attracts the attention of God. And when he forgives you, here's how you know you're forgiven. You will become bold. And you will become joyful. Why? Because the chains that bound me have been broken. That's what God does. Folks, you know what that means? That means you can go to anyone in the power of the name of God. Tell them about how holy God is and the wrath that is coming to sinners. And then tell them that the wrath that they deserve was laid on the shoulders of the Son of God. Isaiah 50. Isaiah will later say this. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. Why? So that my sin, my debt, my brokenness could be borne away. And when that happens to you, When you hear the voice of God, this is going to be your response. Send me, Lord. It's a joyful, bold, humble response. Okay, and that's the part. I I want you to make sure you get this. The holiness of God will humble you. When you're humbled, he will cleanse you. And when you're humble, he will use you. God is attracted to humility. And his holiness prompts it. And when you are humble, he will use you. He is near to the brokenhearted. Amen. He comforts those who are crushed in spirit. Amen. Folks, when you meet God, when you see God, it will have an undoing effect. That is a good thing. Don't resist it. And don't hide from people in an effort to gain friends. Don't hide from people the truth about God. He is holy. 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 God does not aim to ruin us. He aims to rescue us. But to rescue us, he must show us who we are so that we will glory in who he is and what Christ has done. In Luke chapter 5, Peter and his friends are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They've fished all night. Jesus walks up beside this shore. And Jesus says, "Hey, how's the fishing going?" Response of the uh, Peter and the professional fishermen: "The fish aren't running tonight." Okay. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, "Well, uh, cast your net on the other side," which makes what? No sense. That's ludicrous. We fished all night; we caught nothing. Well, did you try the other side of the boat? And Jesus compels them. What do they do? They cast it in. And what happens? Something majestic happens. A catch like the professional fisherman had never seen. Peter's response? I want to sign a contract with Jesus. He can be my consultant. Jesus would be a great profit center. Let's go and see if he's available and employable. Is that his response? Oh. All Peter's thoughts about himself are destroyed by what? By the majesty and holiness of God. And I'll tell you how I know that that's true. Peter jumps in the water and swims to shore. Unless the other people do the work. Why? He is suddenly unconcerned about fish. He swims to shore. And what does he say? He says, Lord, leave me alone. Depart from me. That's weird. Why? Because the majesty of God revealed in this unbelievable miracle that was unexplainable destroyed Peter. In the presence of Christ, where he, he's just like, I am nothing. I am nothing. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. Folks, Listen. How does they catch a fish, miraculous, show you your sinfulness? How does that happen? That's weird. Well, what happened? The presence of God was revealed in the words of Christ and in what took place on the lake so that Peter was undone. What does Jesus say to Peter? You know what, Peter, you're right. You are really sinful. I can't use someone like you. You know what he says? He says, Peter, you are true. You are a sinful man. But then he's, what does he say to him? He says, and I want you to come and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Isaiah saw God. God says, whom shall I send? Who will go? Isaiah says, I'll do it. God destroys Peter with a vision of his majesty and holiness that allows him to see his sinfulness. And in that moment, he is changed by the grace of God. Hope for ruined and self conscious sinners is found in Jesus. The holiness of God shows our sin, the cross of God shows his holiness and love. Practical impact, 1 Peter 1, Just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. With the realization that our holiness is never a holiness of equality, one writer said. "You know, I'm never going to be as holy as God is because I will never achieve this idea of majesty. That's God's. But this idea of moral proximity to God, well, that's what God's talking about, right? So that we can be increased in usefulness for his glory. So it's not, it's not a being like God in the, in the sense of being exact. It's being like God in the sense of similar, to, in, in a similar way, in the way that a flashlight is light. But when the sun's out, flashlights aren't really useful, right? But that light is a light in a similar way. So Jesus says to the church, cleansed, purified by his blood, you are the light of the world. You. Well, who's the light in the Bible? Jesus says, I'm the light. Then he says to the disciples, you're the light. Similar, not exact, not same, not same in magnitude, but we are the light. And he says to us, will you go? Be holy, he says, for I am holy. And this call to progress is an aided pursuit. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, May God strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in his presence when Jesus comes. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?